Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Well, good morning, church. My name is Michael, and I'm so glad to be able to open up God's, with you, God's Word with you this morning. And I'm, I'm grateful for the kind invitation uh, to be able to be here and speak to you this morning. Uh, in the conversations that I had with Ben leading up to this, uh, I asked, you know, what, what can you tell me about uh, the body of Christ at Eastwood? What, what kind of message would be encouraging? Is, is there a particular uh, word that would be helpful? And, and one of the things that he shared with me is that here at, at Eastwood, that this expression of the local church, that we really try here in as much as we can to emphasize to people that even though we gather here together to worship and to serve one another on Sundays, that we really want people to understand that we're not meant to stay here. That the church is, is not just a gathering of people, it's a dispersion of people. That we gather here together to learn and to worship and to be recharged and to encourage one another and to pray for one another. But ultimately, we gather so that we can go. We want to be a church that really doesn't have walls. We want to be a church that understands that it's the nature of Christianity to join God in the mission that he's on, which is to make a real, tangible impact in the lives and the souls of the world around us, starting right here in Bowling Green. And so I want to talk to you to that end this morning about joining God in his mission. And there's a lot of texts in the Bible that you could turn to that point to the necessity of Christians understanding that our purpose is not just to gather together, but our purpose is really to be out in the world, to make a gospel-centered dent in the darkness. There's, the Bible is replete with texts that you could turn to, but I know of none that is more clear and more directive and more compelling and, in a lot of ways, more convicting than the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 25 in your Bibles, we're going to be reading that together here in just a second. We're also going to put that uh, text on the screen so you can read along up there uh, with us as, as well when we, when we get there. Um, but before we do, let me see if I can sort of set the context for this teaching that Jesus gives us about real, tangible, boots-on-the-ground ministry from Matthew chapter 25. So in Matthew chapter 25, the teaching that Jesus gives takes place in the context of Jesus' last week of ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. Historically, it takes place during a period of time called the Passover. And it takes place in Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, during this particular week, every single year, it was the busiest week of the year in Jerusalem because Jews and God-fearing people from all over the world, regardless of where they live, would congregate in Jerusalem on a, on a yearly basis to celebrate the annual holiday of the Passover. In fact, historians tell us that during this week of the year in Jerusalem, that the population of Jerusalem swelled to be six times its normal population. Now, if you can just imagine, if you woke up tomorrow 
and the city of Bowling Green had six times as many people in it as it does right now. Imagine the kind of issues that that would create inside of the city. Imagine the infrastructure issues. Imagine the issues with hotel accommodations. Imagine how long you would have to wait to get into a restaurant. Imagine even the simple things like sanitation and plumbing that would be stressed in the city. Now take that picture and transport it over into the first century and you start to get an idea about how problematic this week was for the city of Jerusalem every single year. You know, from my own experience, I, I, we live south of Nashville, uh, down in the Brentwood area. Uh, but, but Nashville, you guys probably know, over the last five to seven years, man, everybody seems like they're moving to Nashville. And, and the people that live in Nashville are just about ready to put up a barrier on the edge and say, y'all quit coming here. Uh, this last week, in particular, was the most terrible week in Nashville that I remember in a really, really long time, because... In one weekend, starting on a Thursday, about a week and a half ago, Nashville hosted the NFL draft. Now, that was a spectacle to behold. I wouldn't be caught dead within 100 miles of the NFL draft downtown Nashville. But the statistics coming out tell us that there were over 500,000 people in downtown Nashville for the NFL draft. Now, combine that with the fact that in addition to the NFL draft, it was also the weekend for the running of the Country Music Marathon. So you tack on another 100,000 people that were there not only to run the race, but to watch the race. And you tack on top of that the fact that there were several concerts like there are every weekend uh, in Nashville, and you got that happening downtown. And for a brief period, about three weeks ago, we thought that in the midst of the draft and the marathon and all the concerts, that the, the Nashville Predators were going to be playing a home playoff game at the same time there, which made it absolutely unbelievable that anybody in the world would actually want to be in downtown Nashville at this time. You probably saw some of the pictures that came out. People jam-packed down Broadway, shoulder to shoulder. For somebody who is an introvert, it would be like the seventh circle of hell down there. That's what it was. Now, take that scene and again, import it back to the first century. And that's what happened every single year in Jerusalem during the week of Passover. So you can already tell that people were probably a little bit on edge walking into the city. Because they know they're going to have to fight for their space. They're going to have to find a place to stay. Everything's going to be busy. Everything's going to be crowded. We don't know exactly where all the food is going to come from. So everybody is just a little bit on edge anyway because of the busyness, the hecticness, and the crowded nature of the city during this particular week out of the year. Now, in this particular instance, that frustration, that anticipation, some of that nervousness is heightened because everybody knew that Jesus was going to be there. Jesus has been on the religious scene for about three years now, and everywhere he goes, he brings additional crowds with him. Now, some of those people are true followers, people that believe that this Jesus is actually the Messiah, the promised one of God that was going to come and provide deliverance for the Jewish people. But then there's a whole other host of other people who are following Jesus just because they know wherever Jesus is, there's going to be some kind of show. We're going to get some kind of controversial teaching, or maybe we'll bear witness to a miracle. Maybe we'll get, even get some of that special uh, fish and bread that comes out of the air that we've heard so much about in other places. So all of these people are following Jesus. And they're coming now into 
this crowded scene of Passover there too. So you put all of those ingredients together, and what you have is an atmosphere of tension. You've got this maybe Messiah coming into the most hectic time of the year in a crowded city along with an opposition party that believes that Jesus is the furthest thing from the Messiah. He's actually possessed by a demon, and so everybody is just a little bit on edge. And frankly, Jesus, up to this point, that week of Passover, hasn't done a lot to try and scale down the anticipation and the nervousness. Because he has come into the city and he has told weird stories. He's overturned tables. He has criticized the religious elite. And then we come to Matthew chapter 25 when he starts talking about the very end of the world. And so this is what he teaches in this atmosphere of everybody on edge and heightened anticipation. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus gives us this teaching then and this teaching for us this morning. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 starts like this. Then when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and he'll put the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? When did we see you without clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus The king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, you read this parable, and one of the first reactions that you might have is, I totally get if we are meant to be a church without walls, a church that looks to the community, a church that seeks to make a measurable dent in the spiritual but also physical darkness around us. I totally get why this passage should mean something to us. Because not only is it a teaching from Jesus, but it is a strong teaching of Jesus to this very end. And it's not the only place, again, that we find exhortations like this in the Bible. There are literally hundreds of biblical commands 
that talk about the role of the faithful in how they provide for the lowest and the least of these. Just a couple of examples. I, I think about uh, back when the Lord gave his people the law, when they were going to enter into the land that he had promised them. And you right, remember that when he said, you're going to go into this land that I have given you, and you're not going to have to raise your own crops. You're not going to have to build your own cities. All these things will already be there. I'm giving you this land. But then he makes this uh, sort of exception when he talks about the farming practice of the new land. He says, when you guys go in and you start planting crops, make sure that when it comes time to harvest those crops, that you don't harvest all the way to the edge of your fields. And the reason that you're not supposed to do that is because there may be a moment when somebody who doesn't have enough food, when there may be a moment that there's a widow, when there may be a moment that there's an orphan, when there may be a moment when there is someone in need comes through the land and they're going to go to the edges of your fields where you haven't harvested and be able to glean the grain that's on the edges of your field. This is my command to you, the Lord says. Don't go all the way to the edge. Make exception for those who are in need. In fact, if you continue through the Old Testament, you find the Lord continually identifying himself as the protector of those who can't protect themselves. That he is the defender of the widow. That he is the defender of the orphan. You turn over to the New Testament and you find that when people come into a relationship with Christ, one of the things that often happens is that they make restitution for what they've done before they became a Christian. You find people like Zacchaeus who had robbed people having come into Christ that he immediately goes and starts giving back all the stuff that he had taken from people unfairly. And that's even before you get to the book of James. And the book of James is all about putting your faith in action. The book of James tells us things like you shouldn't show any kind of partiality based on how important a person is in the community, based on what race a person is. You shouldn't show any partiality at all. In fact, James goes so far and says that if you say you have faith, and yet, you do nothing to help people who don't have food and don't have clothing, then your faith is just meaningless words. It's dead. So this theme of caring for the lowest and the least is not one that you just find in this one single parable from Jesus. It's a theme that you find going all the way throughout the Bible. And then back here, of course, in this particular passage, you see Jesus going strongly after this idea. It's, it's interesting to note that in this particular passage, Jesus feels so strongly about those people who don't have food and don't have water and don't have clothing and are in prison and are lonely. He feels so strongly about those people that he identifies himself with those people. What I mean is that in this teaching, Jesus could have said something like, you know, you should give food to those who are hungry and water to those who are thirsty and clothes to those who don't have clothes. You should do that because when you do that to those people, it's kind of sort of like you're actually doing that to me. And when you see people that are in need and you refuse to help them in these real practical, tangible ways, it's kind of sort of like you see me there and you don't help me. But he doesn't do that. He goes a step further and actually identifies himself as these people. He doesn't say it's kind of sort of like you help me or it's kind of sort of like you don't help me. Jesus says when you give to those who don't have, you are actually giving to me. And when you refuse help to those who need it, 
you are actually refusing help to me. Jesus puts himself squarely in the middle of this particular teaching. The overall point is that if you are a Christian, then your faith will be demonstrated in tangible, practical means. We will help other people. Real faith has legs. And yet, maybe the other thing that you're thinking as you read this parable is that there is a certain tension here for the Christian, isn't there? Because Jesus, in his story, says that there's going to come a moment when there's going to be a great dividing line between all the nations of the earth. And he's going to say to the people, on, he's going to separate them and put the people over here on the right. And he's going to say, you guys are like the sheep. And he's going to put the people over here on the left and say, you guys are like the goats. And in this story, what Jesus seems to be saying is that the difference between being on this side and the difference between being on this side is not what you believe. It is instead what you do. He seems to say that the reason why you're over here is because you did all of these things. And the reason why you're over here is because you didn't do all of these things. Now, that ought to give you some pause if you are a Christian that believes the Bible this morning. And what you ought to be thinking is, this seems radically contradictory to other things that I find, particularly in the New Testament. It seems to contradict, for example, what Paul tells us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul says that we were all dead in our sins and our transgressions, that we were without hope. But it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there is a tension that we find in this parable between Jesus saying that there's got to be a priority made in the life of the Christian to, make, uh, 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 to, to, to help those who don't have what they need for the daily course of life and survival. And what we find in places like Ephesians chap- chapter 2 where Paul says it's by grace you have been saved through faith. To put it another way, you might look at Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25 and say something like, cool idea, Jesus, and a neat way to make the world a better place. But where is the gospel? Because I don't see anybody being let into heaven by grace through faith in this passage. This is a good tension for us to examine this morning. And as we examine that tension with the rest of our time here, I think what the Lord would want to show us this morning is that what we see in Matthew chapter 25 is not something contrary to what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2. Instead, what we find in Matthew chapter 25 is a full exploration of what happens when we really experience what happens in Ephesians chapter 2. And one of the ways I think we get there to resolving this seeming conflict between these two teachings is the fact that the sheep display a remarkable confusion 
when they are put on this side of eternity. Did you notice it? So again, there's a moment, Jesus says in, in his story, there's a moment when there's going to be a great dividing line between all the nations. And the sheep are going to be over here and the goats are going to be over here. And maybe you're thinking right now, boy, I sat on the wrong side of the auditorium this morning. Should have gone right instead of left. So Jesus says over here to these people that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was sick. I was in prison. I didn't have clothes. And you did all these things to help me. And the sheep look back at Jesus, and in so many words, they say something like, okay, now don't get us wrong here, because we're super happy that we're on this side. But as long as we're on this side, and we've got that taken care of, if we could ask a follow-up question, Jesus, our follow-up question is really simple. Because we don't remember doing any of these things. Now, again, don't get us wrong. We're not saying we're on the wrong side. We, we, we like the side that we're on. We just don't get it. We're confused about when all of these things happen. And you see the same level of confusion on the part of the people that are on this side. These guys asked their question, and the goats on this side said, Yeah, 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 us too. We don't remember not doing any of these things. Surely, if we had seen you, Jesus, we would have done all of these things. So there's a confusion on both the sheep and the goats, and that confusion leads us down the road to reconciling these two things together. And here's how it does. The confusion reveals that both on the part of the sheep and on the part of the goats, that either their willingness to embrace the call to tangibly make a difference in the world or their unwillingness to embrace the call to make a tangible difference in the world is more than a project but is instead the natural outflow of what they were already doing in their lives. Let me give a couple of illustrations to help, uh, help us understand, I, I hope, by God's grace, what, what we mean here. Uh, if we took a poll of the audience, and a really simple question this morning. So a poll of the audience, and we said, okay, guys, who brushed their teeth this morning? Anybody? We got a lot of kids did. That's really good. My man down here did not. That's okay, buddy. There's still time today. You can still work that out. All right? So pretty much everybody, yes, I brushed, your te- I brushed my teeth. Now, but let's say that I dug a little bit deeper in that question. So we pulled a couple of volunteers up here, and I said, not just did you brush your teeth this morning, but I said something like, okay, now, tell me about your experience in brushing your teeth. Well, that becomes a little bit more confusing, right? Like most of us probably couldn't say this morning if we started with our uppers or our lowers or if we went in circular motion or back and forth. We can't say exactly if we spent the right amount of time on the right versus the left or if maybe we overweighted it for one side or the other. But we know we brushed our teeth. We just can't remember the specifics of it. Well, the reason why that is is because brushing your teeth by the time you reach a certain age becomes less about the specific of the act and becomes just something that you do in the regular course of your life. It becomes part of your routine. It becomes part of your rhythm. 
So you might display a measure of confusion if I asked you to give me all the specifics about the way and the manner that you brushed your teeth this morning, and yet you know you did it, you just can't tell a lot about how it happened. What if the same thing is true about the sheep? What if the same thing is true about the sheep in the sense that the sheep represented in this story have been so deeply changed by the message of the gospel that all of these good works that they did were not about checking off a project on their list and were more about the way that they lived out the everyday course of their lives. See, this is way different than we typically look at the good things that we do. I suspect that for many of us, if we put ourselves in this story and we're on this side of the room and Jesus said, you did all of these things, that many of us would nod our heads and say, oh yeah, I remember that. There was totally that one time when I went to build houses in Guatemala. And there was that one time with that lady in Target. I gave her $20, and nobody else believed that she really needed it. But I did, but I gave her. You know why? Because I've been keeping score. This is not the kind of good works that Jesus wants us to accumulate, the ones that are logged in some kind of notebook so that we can hold them over the head of God as if to say, look how good of a job I'm doing as a Christian. Instead, what Jesus wants to move us toward is understanding that doing good in our daily lives is a matter of living out the change that God has already brought in us according to the gospel. Now, one of the reasons that I think we struggle with this is because we typically tend to think of the gospel exclusively in terms of a destination kind of message. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I, I grew up uh, in, in uh, uh, the First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, and there was a, a wonderful pastor uh, that was there who actually led me to the Lord. And every single Sunday, this man, at the end of his message, uh, as he preached from the Bible, every single Sunday, he would ask everybody in the auditorium to bow their head and close their eyes. And then he would say something like, if you died tonight, do you know absolutely for sure that you would go to heaven instead of going to hell? And I remember, even as a kid, having a couple of questions about that. I remember one of the questions was, as he would ask this question uh, week after week, I always wondered why everybody always died at night. It seems strange to me. Nobody in, in this illustration, nobody ever died during the daytime. Surely there were people that actually died during the daytime, but not here in this one. You always die at, at night. But then the second question that I tended to have was, is Christianity really just about where I'm going? Because if it's only about where I'm going, then how does it really make any difference the way in which I live on a day-to-day -day basis? Now, don't make any mistake about this. Christianity is for sure about where you're going. It is the message by which we can be saved from an eternity in hell and delivered to an eternity in heaven. It's for sure about where you're going. But if you only ever think about the gospel in terms of your destination, then you are selling the full impact of the gospel in your life very, very short. Because the gospel is not just about your destination, it's about your identification. It's not just about where you're going. The gospel is about who you're becoming. See, when we embrace the gospel, it's not just that our trajectory changes. When we embrace the gospel, it's that our entire identity changes. 
I think about another teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 22, and you'll probably remember this one as well. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is answering a, a question from somebody who doesn't really have a pure heart in asking the question. It's, it's a teacher of the law that's trying to trip Jesus up, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, we have so many commands in the Old Testament, so many, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, Jesus says. Uh, the, and the, the questioner says, Jesus, which of these commands is the greatest one? And Jesus says, let me simplify the entire law for you. He says, the greatest commands that you need to follow are twofold. The first one is that you want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he says, the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything boils down to those two things. Now, if you really think about that command that Jesus gives, that this is the most important thing for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, if you really start thinking about that, what you come to realize is that that is a crushing command from Jesus. Because he has given you a command that you cannot accomplish. It, it, it would be like this. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, I've got a 14-year-old, I've got a 12-year-old, and I've got a 9-year-old. And if my kids were on stage here today and we asked them uh, just some basic questions, like, for example, guys, help us get to know you. Can you tell us what your favorite foods are? My 14-year-old named Joshua would tell you that his favorite food, his favorite food is barbecue chicken pizza. And if you've ever been or you have a 14-year-old, you know that at 14 years old, you can put a pizza in front of a 14-year-old and their jaw unhinges like a snake and it just sort of, they yawn and it disappears into nothingness. That's how it is with Joshua. Now, my, my 12-year-old is uh, a, a little more refined than that. Like last night, we had her birthday meal and what she requested for her birthday meal was uh, baked lemon chicken, mashed potatoes, and roasted asparagus with cheesecake for desserts. We made all that. That's her favorite meal. Now, if you ask the nine-year-old, my other son, what his favorite meal is, he would tell you ramen noodles. That's what he wants. So we're saving some money there. And let's say you ask them not what their favorite meal was. Let's say that you ask them what your least favorite food is. While they vary in what their favorite foods are, they would answer in unity if what their least favorite food is. What they would say is, we can't stand asparagus. They hate asparagus. It's bad. Now, their problem is that my wife and I really like asparagus. Asparagus on the grill, nice and fresh. Not the canned asparagus. That's gross. But fresh asparagus with some lemon on it is delicious. Now, I know as a parent... That asparagus night, when it rolls around, is going to be a test of wills. That every asparagus night, the asparagus is going to hit the table, and they're going to let it sit there for three, four, five hours at a time until it's cold and mushy, being belligerent about eating everything else except their asparagus. And eventually, what's going to have to happen on asparagus night is I'm going to have to slam my hand on the table and say, children... Children, as your father, I command you to eat your asparagus. Now, they are pretty compliant kids, and most of the time, they will do what I command. They will go through the mechanics of making their jaw go up and down with a milk chaser, and they will force the asparagus down their gullets. But let's say that one asparagus night, I come to the kids, and I say something like, Children... Tonight, I give you a new command. 
It is not to eat your asparagus. Tonight my command is love your asparagus. Oh, hey, hey, now, wait a minute. Now, if they were self-aware enough to do it, what they could do is look back at me and say, Dad, that's impossible. You could have given us any other command here. You could have said, eat your asparagus, and we can make ourselves go through the motions of doing that. But if you're telling us that the only way to please you, the only way to do what's right, the only way to obey your command is not just through going the mechan- through the mechanics of eating the asparagus, but actually loving the asparagus, then you can't just give us the command because you crush us with this command. If you want us to obey this, you can't just give us the command. You have to give us new taste buds to go along with it. So we go back to the scenario with Jesus, where Jesus says, this command I give to you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And if we're self-aware enough in that moment, we ought to look back at Jesus and say, Jesus, you have crushed us with this command. You could have given us any other command, and we could go through the mechanics of actually doing it. We could make ourselves do a lot of things. But if you're telling us that the only way to truly please you is not just through obeying the mechanical motion of doing what you say, but to actually love God, then you can't just give us the command. You have to give us a new heart that goes along with the command. And if we were to look back at Jesus and say that, I think that maybe he would say, now you're starting to understand. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel does more than change where you're going. Through the gospel, you actually get a new heart. The old is gone, the new has come, and the new heart is characterized by the righteousness of Christ. And with that new heart, we have new tastes, we have new desires, we have new inclinations. And our greatest desire as a Christian, even though we still fall short, down deep in our hearts, if we are Christians, the greatest desire that we have is to love and serve God. Now, if that's true and that change happens so deeply inside of us, then doing the things that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 25 are the most natural things in the world for us to do. They stop being mere projects and they start being like brushing your teeth. It's by this that we live out the change that God has wrought inside of us. This is where the gospel intersects Matthew chapter 25. This is where we see Ephesians 2 and Jesus' parable coming together and that Paul is telling us that in Christ through the gospel you can actually be made new. You can move from death to life. You can be resurrected into a new person with new desires. And Jesus is telling us that when that happens it's the most natural thing in the world for those things to work themselves out in your daily life. And the news for us this morning is that if you are truly a Christian, then these things that Jesus describes ought not to be something that we wait to have an opportunity provided for us on the calendar. Rather, we should walk through our daily lives seizing hold of all the opportunities to do good that God has put in our pathway. That they become the natural outworking of what God has already done for us on the inside. The impact that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 25 
is not without the gospel. It is fueled by the gospel. When our impact and our actions are fueled by the gospel, we come to understand that we take hold of these everyday opportunities to make a real impact in the world, not to find some kind of self-fulfillment, not to check off our monthly mission requirements, not to chase our dreams, not to feed our personal passions, and not even ultimately to help people. We do these things because we realize that long before we were able to do anything to help anyone else in a measurable way, God has already done all of these things for us in Christ. So yes, friends, we go out and we help orphans. We build orphanages. We provide for people who don't have parents. We bring them into our homes. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because when we were spiritual orphans, God has opened up his house to us and given us a place at his table. We go out and we make sure that people around us have enough food to eat. Why do we do that? We do it because Jesus has already given us himself as the bread of life on which we can feast. We go out and we dig wells so that people all over the world can have clean drinking water. Why? Because Jesus is the living water and has given us himself so that we would never be spiritually thirsty again. We go out and we work for the eradication of diseases that can be really eradicated. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus is the great physician who has already cured us of the greatest disease of sin and death. We go and provide electricity and plumbing to people who don't have it. Why? Because we know Jesus is the light of the world and in him we will never walk in darkness again. We give of our time and our money and our talents and all our other resources. Why? Because we know that in the gospel God has already made us rich in Christ and ultimately we love God and we love everyone else around us. Why? Because we know that God has first loved us in Christ. This is the way that we fill up the impact and the way that we live it out. And may it be that by God's grace this morning, we would start to see that he has changed us at such a deep level because of the message of the gospel, that it's the most natural thing in the world for us to live our daily lives as a spiritual and physical testimony of the grace and the goodness of God in Christ. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a savior. 
But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.